This is David Wilson, and welcome to episode 19 of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. On Another Track is speaking with people we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. Leave it as it is, just stop it. I'll tell you the reason why. It's going to record the same place as I'm recording on Zoom. So let's just leave my recording going. Let's not complicate things. He said, listen, let me give you some advice on blogging. Just keep writing. Keep writing, keep blogging. If you're doing a podcast, keep doing it because what happens is it starts to rise and rise and rise and rise. That's the voice of Stephen Mayer, my guest this week. He's the principal and founder of SF Mayer LLC. What struck me about Stephen is the amazing career he's had with the engineering and architectural world. Couple this with his love of poetry and starting his own blog and being an adjunct professor, I just had to interview him for the show. As a licensed engineering strategist and expert facilitator, has helped countless companies win more work, increase profitability and play at the top of their game. No mean feat when you think all you wanted to do was be a poet. I first started by asking Stephen what were the type of companies he works with and how does he help them get to the top of their game? The culmination of where I'm at right now, David, really is my business. Um, named, after my, named after myself, it's SF Mayer LLC. And what I've done, I've been able to really pull together my entire career, which has included some included academics, the engineering area, the business area. And what I do now is I work uh, largely with professional services firms in this engineering and architectural space. And what I do is I generally come in and work with them on pursuits that they're going after on major projects. I'm talking about projects that are generally in the constructed value of hundreds of millions of dollars. The fees are maybe in the tens of millions of dollars for the firm. And what I do is I work with them on their entire sales process, helping them from lead identification, the key client, what the client's looking for, what's going to differentiate them in the marketplace. Some of this traditional work like SWOT analyses, you know, strengths, weakness, opportunity, threats, help them develop their differentiators, help them do competitive analysis, and then work right through with them as they prepare their proposals and get ready to go after major jobs. And one of the, one of the key areas I work with too is presentation coaching, because most major projects, the client wants the proposers to come in and present to them. So I'll do tons of rehearsals with firms, helping them get ready to deliver a very powerful message. So really focus on not only content, but what's the best way to deliver that. And then we, we wrap around that, really, what are the good graphics to use, uh, augmented or virtual reality, simulations, all of the different, uh, what I'll call basket, if you want, it's pretty extensive, of creative type services they can use to enhance the spoken and the written word. And uh, that's because these jobs are high stakes for these firms. And what I found is a lot of what applies into the engineering space also applies to other businesses as well, product businesses, you know, product service businesses. So that's really what I've been doing, and I do it all over the United States. Prior to that, when I was with a major engineering firm, I was doing it all over the United States, Canada, the Middle East, 
little bit in South America and Europe, as well as out in the Pacific Rim, Guam of all places. But yeah, that's a thumbnail sketch of the business. You're a well-traveled man over the years. That's pretty interesting. Um, Something I'd like to ask you, how would you say in your experience, presentations have changed in the last 30 to 40 years? I mean, is the primary objective change or just the way that we deliver? What would you say in your opinions, the key things that have changed? I think it's both. I, I, I think it's really, really knowing your audience because some audiences really don't want to see bells and whistles and all kinds of, of fancy. They just, they want to see you as a genuine individual, a person that's got a passion for what they, what they're looking for. You're, you're aligned with their business that, you know, you're sharing in their, clearly you're sharing in their success. True, true technology is really enhanced presentations, but it still comes down to having a deep understanding of your, of your client, having a, and, and rehearsing, going in there and knowing how to deliver content in a very, and I'd like to say entertaining and meaningful way so that the client says, what's the value? What, what's the so what here for me? And the preparedness, I think, has been said by President Woodrow Wilson years ago. He said, if you give me an hour to talk, I'm ready to start talking right now. If I'm going to have a half an hour, I'll need three days to get ready. And if you have like seven minutes, I'll need a week to get ready. So he begins by saying, if you want me to speak for an hour, I'm ready right now. That, that whole sort of quote by him really comes down to this. Get ready. Know your audience. Speak with passion. Think about the best way to deliver content. As you know, David, when we talked on Lunch Club, I, I still teach. I was a faculty fellow at, the, at a university. Now I just do adjunct work. But I really spend a lot of time delivering and thinking about content and relevancy. How do I deliver this content so that students really get it and that it's relevant to them? One area that I really like to focus on is half of me teaching is me also learning. I'm doing a joint exploration with, you know, with them. And I always say to them, the very first class, I want you to do the following. Take out a sheet of paper. And on that sheet of paper, write, answer the following question. In order for this class to be relevant to me, we must fill in the blanks. And it's nice to get a take on the audience. And now I get a few that say, I, I want to get an A plus out of the class, understandably. <laughs> but then, yeah. So that's how I think it, that's how I think it's changed in terms of preparedness. And the other thing is this, everybody's good. All firms are good. Almost all firms are good. I like to use the analogy of a hundred sprinters, say the hundred, the world-class hundred meter sprinters. You know what separates the top 10? I think it's like one-tenth of one second. So when you think about it, what really gives you that defining edge to help you win? Because everybody has good people now, good technologies, and knows how to do the work. Okay, that's really great how you illustrated that. How much of this is down to luck and serendipity, you know, uh, when it comes to doing presentations? Because you can get everything absolutely right. You can write the right personality in front of the right people. But how much is it still down to luck on the day? What do you think? Luck still plays an important part, but I will tell you what the single big, and this is where my, my some of my PhD, my PhD was in applied research. The key is this, number one, out of looking at about 20-some factors I looked at, is relationships and personal relationships. People that know you, that trust you, even, even if you may not be the best at technical solutions or whatever, but if they know that they can work with you, trust you, and that you share in their, you know, in their experience as well, that's a winner. That's a winner. Um, the, one of the firms I work for has an almost an 80% win rate which is almost unheard of in the engineering field. 
but the stakes are high, but their stakes are high for all firms, even small firms that are saying, look, you know, we need to get our win rate up. We need to start getting, what are we doing wrong? Why aren't we winning? You're not just, you don't want to just be throwing in a proposal or a quote and hope that it happens, but does chance and luck ever come in? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. It sure does. Yeah. Okay. And and if somebody is struggling a little bit, you know, previously, maybe four or five years ago, they were winning a reasonable amount of wins, you know, maybe of all the people that were calling, maybe they were getting 10 or 15%, which isn't a bad win rate when you're, where, when you're calling people, reaching out to people. But, the, you know, recently they found because of the situation we're in, it's difficult to get face-to-face meetings. It's difficult to even get people on the telephone. What are some of the key techniques that, you know, our listeners can do to build up that relationship and to build up that kind of communication with their potential, you know, clients at the end of the day? Yeah, that's been a big change, obviously, with this black swan event that we've had, right, with with COVID. And uh, if you were to say to people a year, year and a half ago that all your meetings are going to be online, I think most people would have not agreed with you. First and foremost, where you can, where and when you can meet in person with clients, I always recommend that. There's no question. However, when you start to look at Zoom and all the different, you know, Microsoft Teams, all the different platforms, you know, WebEx that you can you can do, you, I believe that you can still build relationships. I mean, you're, they're not as nuanced as you would if you're, you're meeting in person, clearly, uh, but it really calls upon everybody to say, look, Let's stay connected on phone, on face, you know, FaceTime or, or like we're doing now on Zoom. It, it's, it's critical because it's easy to just slip away from that. You know, even if it's just a check-in call, hey, let, can we do some FaceTiming together? And so I never, I, I always recommend to folks, obviously try to, try to do to the extent that it's safe and allowed and all of that in-person meetings. But if not, then get online, do the FaceTiming. And make sure your clients or your customers haven't forgotten about you. I also think it's very, very important to get active on Twitter, LinkedIn, all the social media. You know, there's a, there's a whole plethora of those out there. And it's important so folks know what you're doing and that you're, you're staying connected w- with them using the platform in a very meaningful and successful way. What was your biggest win? When it came to securing something like like a contract or, you know, being able to do a presentation and getting a great win. Tell us all about that. It was over a billion dollars. Uh, was a very large job in Brooklyn. It was a it was a widening of a of an expressway. And we came up with a very, very creative tagline. Uh, the group that I worked with was some of the best structural engineers probably in the world. Uh, very, very competent. And oftentimes... <laughs> Oftentimes, when you work with folks that are kind of in the upper the upper tier of where they are in terms of their career, their knowledge, their expertise, egos can sometimes get in the way a little bit. And uh, that where you'll be working with them, coaching them along, and say, "I, you know, I know how to do this. I know how to speak in public or whatever." And you know, David, one of the things I, I always remind groups when I start working with them: remember, I come in objectively. I'm I come in without a preconceived notion and all of that. Is the following? I tell them, look. In his prime, Tiger Woods was the best golfer in the world. And I said, do you know what the people that are the best at what they do? The best athletes, the best opera singers, the best brain surgeons, whatever they may be, they go to their coach. And the reason they go to their coach is that marginal gain, that marginal improvement. Could they outperform their coach in any given day? Absolutely. Absolutely, they could. However, that coach that works with them says, you know, I'm observing this. 
maybe we tweak this a little bit. Think of a baseball player, a, a, in a batting coach, and all the different coaches that exist in all professions. They add great value because they give you that marginal increase that you need to win in the marketplace and to be highly, highly competitive and to make you the best you can be. That's the, that's the ultimate that's the ultimate goal. And that's fantastic advice, actually, Stephen, because I know being a, a soccer coach, uh, when I came to Canada, everybody thinks you're into soccer, you know, because you come from the UK. I got two left feet. I couldn't kick a ball to save my life, right? However, I found when I was managing the, you know, the young under 12s and under 14 soccer teams, I actually produced teams that were actually very, very successful because I could observe and I could see the little tweets I could make and I could see the raw talent in those young players and say, hey, how about if you just do this, do that? And we were extremely successful. So you're absolutely right there, you know, that the, you know, the person like Tiger Woods is always going to beat the coach. But it's the observer, isn't it? It's being able to observe and seeing what you can do to change their swing or to change the way they're standing or to show, sort, of, sort of where they're looking. You know, don't look there, look there, see what happens and give it a try, isn't it? It's lovely, a lovely feeling. It's funny, like when I write, you know, you know that I write poetry has got my creative side a little bit, but it's funny, I would send it to my editor and she would come back and just bleed all over it. I did one of these, you know, why are you doing this to me? And she goes, and she would always say, what are you trying to say? Get, you know, get to the point. I remember I was on the client side, you know, I ran an international bridge authority and I, the Wall Street Journal did an interview with me. It was an elite article about NAFTA. This is going back a ways. And there were several bridge operators and trucking companies and shippers and all that. She interviewed me for a long time. And I, and I remember I read the article. I said, wow, she got all this in this one paragraph. It's really great. I called her to, to, to express my, you know, gratitude and all that. And I said, you're a phenomenal writer. She goes, no, we have phenomenal editors. <laughs> and she said, she said, her comment to me was, if you don't have thick skin in this business and you're unwilling to take that criticism, don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, you know, that's incredible. She state that because I remember reading somewhere, there's it is the writing's not the hard bit. It's the editing, isn't it? It's the going back and editing and editing and editing. And I know for some of the articles I've ever done, uh, I've gone back four times, five times, and you start to hone it down, hone it down, and getting to single line sentences, full stops, short statements. You know, that's the, the classic way of writing, but people don't realize I, that to start with. It's not about poetry as such. It's more about kind right. of getting the succinct points down on the paper, you know? And I've learned to appreciate it, David. I have to tell you, I, I really, really look forward to it now. And then sometimes I, I play a little game and say, I'm going to see if I can beat my editor. This one. <laughs> but she'll still come back with this. What is it you're trying to say? And I go, all right, here we go. But no, I think she's made me a better writer. And my job in my business, I like to write technical stuff too. And uh, is to really, you know, work with teams that are writing up an approach, a scope of work, whatever, and say, here's how you get better. One of the one of the things that's really helped me too, as I told you, I ran an international bridge authority between Canada and the United States over the Niagara River at Buffalo, New York, and Fort Erie, Ontario. And being on the client side was interesting too, because engineers would propose to me, and I would find myself because I, you know, come out of that business too. I'd be thinking, oh, don't don't say that, don't say that, you know, in the prison. Or I would read something in her proposal, and I would say, you know what? This is really, really good. I wish I was doing something like this five years before. But that's great. You've got the experience on both sides. Actually, tell me a little bit about the uh, the Bridge Authority, because that was a very interesting aspect of your life, because it was quite a major part of your life. Is that correct? Yeah, it was. I worked there 10 and a half years. 
There are nine major crossings in the Great Lakes Basin to facilitate the largest trade relationship in the world between Canada and the United States. Probably a billion dollars a day crosses all those, in terms of all those crossings. They're all organized different. Some are private. Something like I ran, the one I ran was a creature of the federal government of Canada and the state of New York. The ones to the north in Niagara Falls or downriver from us to the north where the federal government of the United States and the province of Ontario. There's some that are uh, like the Blue Water Bridge in Port Huron and Sarnia. Each country owns half the bridge. Ministry of Transportation Ontario and, and Michigan DOT, they own half a bridge. And they have two bridges. So I used to say that my, my Yogi Berra is they own two halves of a bridge, but it's not a whole bridge. <laughs> um, but they're all different. They're all different. They all facilitate trade. That's the key thing. Like when I ran the Peace Bridge on a peak day, there'd be 6,000 trucks on a peak day crossing the bridge. So I, I served as the general manager of operations, the American officer, and the chief engineer of the bridge. So I had three three titles. It was an incredible, built as a private entity in the 1920s, went into bankruptcy in the 30s because of the Great Depression. New York wanted to form an agreement with Canada. U.S. Congress gave them permission to do it under the Constitution, and they formed what's called the Buffalo and Fort Erie Public Bridge Authority. We refer to it as the Peace Bridge Authority. And it was an amazing event. It's called the Peace Bridge to celebrate 100 years of peace. I was going to open in 1912, missed the date, uh, a peace between the Great Britain and the United States. Uh, Canada wasn't a, a country at that time. And it was um, to celebrate a, a guy named Alonzo Mather, too, and all the great inventors that existed in the, in the world. But it was an event that had 100,000 people at the opening. And all the royal family was there, Prime Minister of England, Prime Minister of Canada. It was an event heard around the world on shortwave radio. So it was quite an event. It was in the, on August 7th, uh, 1927, front page of the New York Times. A lot of his... A lot of wonderful history there, too. Very, very interesting. Just briefly, what was the logistics like of running an organization like that? Because that's uh, how many people did you have employed uh, in the bridge? Total employers at the employee people working at the bridge. And that includes all the federal agencies, Public Works Canada, Canada Revenue, uh, Immigration. Now, of course, it's Customs and Border uh, Protection on both sides, but it was Immigration, Customs. Food and Drug, U.S. Department of Agriculture, uh, all the different groups, all the freight forwarding firms, UPS, FedEx, all them, about 1,000 people. Wow. At the Peace Bridge itself was 100, 110. Uh, half of my staff, I, I, about 80% of the total staff reported to me, half Americans, half Canadians. My PhD was in international business. And what I found amazing, David, for me was uh, I got to work in an, in, an international and a, and a different cultural environment. I know a lot of pe- Canadians and Americans have, we have a lot in common, language, shared history, of course, but we're also very different in a lot, in a lot of ways too. So I actually got to live what I had, you know, what I teach in some, it's one of my classes and to experience it. So all the maintenance, all the toll collection, we used to, obviously a lot of outside contractors and engineers too. But it was a great environment within which to work. And you had an international boundary going through the middle of your physical plant. And as a colleague of mine once said, when you run an international business, you get to do everything twice. <laughs> That's really great. I, love that. I used to like that quote, you know, because you had to deal with eight levels of government. 
starting from the two federal governments and working on down. What What do you think are the key skills that you need for that? If somebody was embarking on that type of career, you've got to be an amazing politician, but also a great negotiator, eh? Yeah, because while on the negotiating side, our workers were Teamsters, our toll collectors and maintenance Teamsters U.S., Teamsters Canada. So you had to negotiate labor contracts, clearly. You also had to work with local, uh, all sorts of not-for-profits as well as government agencies. When we looked to expand the bridge, we had to deal with 37 agencies between Canada and the United States, get permits from nine. It even included an amendment to the 1906 Boundary Treaty Waters Act between Canada and the United States as to the Mm -hmm. flow in the Niagara River and all of that. We also uncovered 3 million artifacts. It's a major center for Native North Americans. Uh, I mean, we were actually taking spear points, arrowheads out of excavations, 3 million artifacts. Plus, we had to work around thousands of bodies because we're not allowed to move them. And, you know, but the First Nations had great respect for the way we treated, you know, their heritage and and all that. So diplomacy was critical because there were some people that just plain didn't like you and didn't like anything the bridge was doing. You also had to, again, be a good negotiator. I think you needed a sense of empathy and, and cultural awareness was, was, was critical. And at times, just calmness, just, you know, and careful listening. Um, because the interest, even though, they're, you know, the bridge is a wonderful metaphor, it joins, it joins uh, uh, geographies and whatnot physically, but it also joins cultures, business, um, and a lot of a lot of other human endeavor, if you will. So, um, yeah, I think being being totally aware of that and responsive to it is was critical in that job. And I love the way you actually summed up one point there: calmness. You know, which is very it's missing a lot in our modern world, and that calmness actually allows you to be able to think clearly, deal with things clearly, and be empathetic, like you say, to absorb. And that that was a really good point. I really enjoyed that point you made. There were times I would stay in my office after my day ended or whatever, and I would just be total solitude and quiet, you know, just kind of reflect on this day and think, okay, did I react appropriately? Didn't I? How can I improve? And um, that's something I still do to this very, very day. One reason I write poems that helps me. That was a great segue into my next question, of course, about poetry, because you did allude to the listeners earlier that you write poetry. So where did the inspiration come for writing poetry and how did you get started? Well, I always liked it, believe it or not, when I was in high school and we, I had an English, an English class and we really got into the romanticist, you know, the, uh, the English romanticists in particular, Shelley, Byron, Keats, Wordsworth, and then, uh, you know, Coleridge and then the U.S., you know, uh, guys like Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, Whitman. And I just loved it. It was expressive. It, it, it generated emotion. It wasn't sort of that rigid, um, really so rigid that you, you know, you, you paid more attention just to the stanza length and the words, but um, that it was a nice way to, to express. So I started writing in earnest last, uh, last fall, last fall. And I quickly put together 25 poems. I said, Hey, you know what? I think I can put these in a book. I hired an artist in Argentina. She did a watercolor for each one because I always like I always like artwork to support the words. It reinforces it. It adds more life to it. And an expert in Spain that did print layout for me, my editor, she started. I also got an IP lawyer because I not only wanted to copyright the words, I wanted to copyright the art. The artist gave me copyright uh, privileges on that. 
And I, and I also started a blog site called The Observant Poet, and I, uh, I write blogs on writing, on essays, poems. But what I, what I really strive for, and I've gotten some comments back, which I really appreciate, when people read a novel or a longer book, they kind of can empathize or think about the main characters in there. I wanted to do something a little different. I wanted to put the reader inside the poem, them experiencing their life. So I would write about, you know, the categories are love, spirituality, and nature. But I really try to put them in, they're with their granddaughter. They're, you know, they're experiencing nature. And it's really how they feel about it and, and how they grow, grow with them. It grows with them and makes them feel. And that's, that's the space that I want to stay in. And I will say this, finally, it's also made me a better writer in my business and what I do. I can add some empathy. It's some human characteristics to what could normally be dry, dry engineering writing, you know? No, and I totally understand that being a bit of a poet myself. I usually find I have to get to a space where, you know, my mind's quite free and then it right. just flows. If somebody was embarking on poetry, they've been thinking about it for a little while. I mean, you got to reasonably late in life. I mean, you had a background in writing, but that kind of flow. How do they, how do they get there? What would be the kind of the way that you would suggest for them setting themselves up to be able to sort of write with a flow, you know, of poetry, so to speak? Well, one thing, visit my, my website. It's free to anybody. It's called The Observant Poet. That's exactly what I'm doing. I've got about 20 blogs lined up to go about how to get started. Here's what I did. I would just keep a sheet of paper and a Word doc or something. And I think and I would observe something. I would see, you know, grandfather walking with his grandson or whatever. I would, I would look and see, you know, to a couple enjoying a glass of wine. I would look at a rainy day. And I just started writing down headlines or titles. I can write about a rainy day. I can write about my cottage along the sea. I can write about uh, a, a, a love life that's ended or, or begun. I can write about a wonderful meal, whatever it might be. And then I just tell a little story about that. And one thing is, and I always encourage anybody, just write. People say, oh, I can't get started. It doesn't sound right. It doesn't rhyme. It doesn't seem to flow. That doesn't matter. Just start writing. And once, and that's what, when I get to the point of doing the book, I said, so many people tell me, oh, I should write a book. I should do that. And, and, you know, David, I said to myself, darn it, I'm going to do it. It's like, it's like when I did the PhD, so many people have done the coursework and they would say to me, oh, that's all, it, all, all I have to do is a dissertation. Well, the word to put the emphasis on is the word all, because that's really the word, right? And so many people never finished. I said, I'm bound and determined to finish. And it won't be a work of art <laughs> and it's not going to set the world on fire, but I'm going to get it done. And the same with the book on poems. And, and there's, there's so many online resources to help you get started. I deliberately stayed away from them because I didn't want it to create a bias necessarily or say, oh, I should write the way so-and-so does or whatever. I wrote the way I wanted to write. And that's what's important because when you think about any kind of artistic creation, painting or, or, or art, you know, sculpting or whatever it might be, do what brings joy to your heart. You're halfway through listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week is Stephen Mayer. Next, I wanted to ask Stephen a little bit more about his early life and where did the family come from and how did he get here? (laughs) 
I'm a second generation American. So I am really, really, as they say in the, in the animal pound, you know, really a mutt. Um, my, all of my grandparents came from Europe, uh, Poland, and the ancestry goes like this, Poland, Russia, Croatia, Bavaria, Germany, a little bit of Austrian in there, small amount of Italian, little British, little bit of Ireland. So I'm wondering who the heck was running all around Europe, you know, so that the mix was, was incredible. It's a little bit of Neanderthal, a little bit of Ashkenazi, uh, which was one of the big Jewish tribes and it went through Europe. Um, and so all of these, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's really a mixture. You look at the pie chart of where I've come from. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. But my grand, my one grandfather came to uh, Buffalo, New York area. That's, that's where I live, south of Buffalo, New York. And he um, was quite an entrepreneur. He, st- he opened up and started these candy stores. He, owned, he bought a bar, which became really a well-known uh, bar in Buffalo. Still there. It's called the Swanee House. He uh, was quite an, quite an entrepreneur. And um, I guess he bought it during probably during Prohibition and still was serving. I think everybody was still serving booze at that time. Um, and then my dad's uh, mom, she was from Croatia and came uh, when she was like 16 years old, met my grandfather who was 10 years older. Uh, they got married. So the, um, the, it's all European history, but it's really, really spread all over Europe. And um, I, I kind of wonder how, who was married to who and what was going on, but I guess I want to stay away. It's probably best I stay away from all that. And uh, right now, so I live in East Aurora, New York, south of Buffalo. It's a great, it's a great community uh, for people listening. They, they all probably have a familiarization with it. If you've ever bought a Fisher-Price toy, Fisher-Price is headquartered in East Aurora. It's now owned by Mattel. They're in Los Angeles. But Fisher-Price is still there. It's also President Millard Fillmore. Was, that's his home, his parents' home. And it's also the beginning of the arts and crafts movement in the United States from at the end of the 1800s into the 1900s called the Roycroft. And Roycroft campus is still there. Albert Hubbard and his wife were famous there. They died on the Lusitania. And it's also one of the individuals that was involved was a guy named Darwin Martin, who was the benefactor to Frank Lloyd Wright. In fact, the Darwin Martin house is in Buffalo. And there's just a lot of history. It's also, and I found this out because I was at a local restaurant there. The restaurant's called Mambrino King. And I didn't know what it meant, but Mambrino King was the greatest show horse of all time from the late 1800s and, and East Aurora was a big, and still is uh, a lot of uh, horse community. If you know, a lot of gentlemen farmers <laughs> are there. Yeah, and it's, it's a beautiful little village south of Buffalo by about 18 miles. It's the Northern edge of ski country because the winds come off Lake Erie in the uh, early winter and dump a mountain of snow on you. And I own a place in Florida too, in New Smyrna Beach here. Which is fantastic. It's nice to have the option, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it for sure it is. It, and, you know, when I was, when I was uh, even in my business now, and also when I was with my previous employer, I traveled three to 5,000 miles a week. Oh. And um, oh. I was all, which I love. So the pandemic has sort of put a, <laughs> has really put a crimp on that, obviously. Lovely background to the family. So did you have brothers and sisters? And what was family yeah. like? What was family life like when you were growing up? You know, a lot of people come from a pretty tough family background, not a lot of money in there. Other people come from a more privileged background. What, what was your background? My parents were middle class. Uh, my dad, my dad got out of the war. My dad fought in the in the Philippines, and then and then uh, island hopping, and then onto the occupation force in Japan. 
He had started working for a company, an electrical contractor that did mostly industrial commercial work, came back, went to work for them right after the war, stayed with them over 40 years, uh, took three sick days in 40, in 40 years, no vacation for the first 20 some years. Uh, but my dad was just a, just a great guy and he's also won the Silver Star during the war. So that's like the second or third highest medal you can get. My mom was it started out as stay-at-home mom, but then went to work at Bethlehem Steel in the office. Bethlehem is no longer around, of course. Then went into their IT department, did quite well. My parents were married 50-some years, both died at home. They died back uh, 10, 11 years ago now. And my, I have two sisters. My younger sister actually worked for um, Fisher-Price for 40-some uh, years. She's retired now. My older sister, she was a Buffalo school teacher. But we all sort of stayed at home until we got a little bit older, then either got married or moved out. And, uh, I, you know, I've been married now for, I better get this right, 39 years. Congratulations. That was, that was early family life, grew up in the, in the burbs. But actually, when we moved out there, it was the country. There was nothing there. In fact, my dad bought the property. My mom hadn't seen it. And they built their own house in 1957. But they, uh, when my mom saw the property, I think she was ready to divorce him. And, um, but all, all, worked, all worked out. Yeah, all worked out well. And uh, <laughs> had a wonderful family life and extended family, you know, aunts, uncles. I love my grandparents. In fact, I tell people, I always view grandparents as a gift from God. I mean, grandparents, they're the best. They spoil you rotten. They, if you're fortunate, they love you to death, you know, and uh you, I always used to realize as a kid, I'd say, wait a minute, I got to listen to my parents. My parents have to listen to my, their parents. So I got this one. Thing. <laughs> I could always find sympathy with my grandparents, you know. That's a great story. And I love it. So what were your aspirations in terms of what you wanted to do at school? Because were you from the traditional background going to technical trade or, you know, going to sort of that side of things? Or yeah. did, you, did you have the aspirations to go to college? I mean, what was that all about? I had the aspirations to go to college, no question. And my uncle was a college prophet. We used to be called the State University of New York College of Forestry at Syracuse University. When, and so I went there. And it, it, when I was a junior, it changed the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry. So I stayed there. I got bachelor's degrees. You got a bachelor's degree from Syracuse University and the College of Forestry. Then I, throughout my career, I, while I was working, I had a bachelor's in civil engineering, an MBA in marketing. And my PhD, which is in the PhD, is actually in, in what's called economic geography, world business, and international trade. That's where it was. But I believe it or not, David, I never really had thought about being an engineer. I, 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 one thing I did like about engineering, everything in the world is engineered. Everything, every building, car, transportation system, you name it, there's an engineering input. So I saw unlimited opportunities there. But what I find interesting is that had I not just jumped into that, maybe I would have done something in marketing and advertising, um, which is, I still have that big element in the engineering piece, but, you know, it's, um, I stuck with it. I did it. College of Forestry, uh, Environmental Science of Forestry now is a great place because it's a heavy duty, technical math science background. In fact, I know some guys that went there and went on the dental school in the College of Forestry and then went on to med school or whatever. Yeah. So, and I went to public schools, I, um, all through, you know, grade school, middle school, high school. Then when I started working too, I'm also a licensed professional engineer in four states. So you take your, your PE, it's called professional engineering test in New York was where I took it. 
And then I reciprocated with Maryland, Virginia, and Florida. Um, I keep my license active in Florida. Fantastic. It's kind of your union card if you're in the consulting, sort of the consulting engineering side of things. Yeah. And I know it's actually in the US and actually in Canada, you have to do it for each of the states or each of the provinces that you're in, uh, which is slightly different to Europe. You get your qualification and especially in the UK, you're qualified for the whole UK, but there's a big difference in size you know, between the UK. Yeah, in Canada, it's PN, you know, European. Well, thanks for that. That was, you painted a really great picture of your life and it's really great. It encourages people to say, you know, start with your heart, go for something you really enjoy do that well, and then you can always branch out wherever you want to do later on in life as well. Sure. And that's pretty much what you did. Love to kind of circle around a little bit back to business. I've got one quick question for you about business. Tell me about a situation you've been in with a project or, you know, doing a presentation where it is going completely south. You know, the cards are that you're going to lose this. You're not going to gain this as a win. How did you turn it back around and win the project? Tell me about that. There's been a few of those. So I'll talk more generically about them, but but they were in the, the, the transportation spaces where I spent a lot of my time. So this was, um, you know, and that's largely airports, uh, transit systems, roads, bridges, airports. And you you know that you're not the number one competitor. You know, you've done all this analysis. Your project manager is not as well known or maybe is not as skilled as the other person. But what I've really asked them to do, first of all, why are you going to win this job? what are the reasons you're going to win this job? I hate the word why, because it's accusatory. So what are the reasons you're going to win this job when you know you are not the number one firm? When you know that you're not the number one firm? And let's get real here. When you do a SWOT analysis, David, on a firm, what will happen is they'll, everybody starts with their strengths. And oh, they'll, they'll put a ton of them. I make them now start with their weaknesses. But I, I would say to them, do you think the competitors that are in the next hotel getting ready for this presentation you think they're saying, oh, that other firm is so good. We're not even going to compete. We're not going to win. And so let's just forget it. They're not doing that. And they're identifying all your weaknesses. So sometimes it's a brutally honest. And I've seen firms just say, you know what? We can't win this. Let's pull out. Let's not submit. We come down the way down the track, but we're not going to win this job. So let's forget about it. So I ask people to take a really, really hard look at it and, and be real objective and not in a group setting individually, write it down individually, even if you want to do it anonymously, because if there's pressure by a boss or a sub superior, you would say, oh, I can't say this about our firm. Yes, you can, because the stakes are high. The stakes are high. You got to, if you're going to win the job. So, and I'll also say to, uh, here's a good example. I'll say to my students, how many, I'll do this in the classroom. How many of you have done, gone to a job interview and the job interviewer has said the following to you, tell me about your strengths. I'll bet you everybody that's ever gone for a job interview has got that question. They'll all raise their hand or not. I say, okay, here's the next question. How many of you have said, you know, I know you're going to interview eight people today, and I'm no better than any of the other seven people you're going to interview. So why don't you just put our names in a hat? And if you draw my name, fine. If you don't, I don't want to get the job. And they all look at me incredulous, right? I said, you would never do that, right? You would never do that. So what is it that's unique about you? Get it out there. I use this framework called the Vrio framework, which really is an effective quick screen to, to, to figure out. Because one, one of the issues is when I did my PhD, I asked myself the basic question. Why do some firms in the same industry do better than others? What's the secret sauce to use that old adage? And how do they do that, right? What is it? So ones that I've had to turn around, 
I've done it like that. I say, let's get real. Let's just strip this thing down and we're going to make a decision here and now. You're going to go after it or you're not going to go after it. If you're going to go after it, you're going to put a passion, resources behind this thing and you're, you're going big. The old adage too, David, you're going bigger, you're going home. That's it. Got you. And it's really interesting some of the points you stated there. You know, you've got to have the passion in your heart. That's got to come through, isn't it? Yeah. And do you think it's also about taking people on the journey? Look, let me hold your hand and let me take you on this yeah. journey. And it's it gets real, it gets personal. It's storytelling. And, and I, don't, I don't mean storytelling in a bogus way. I mean, storytelling in a really good way. Let's walk through this. Let's envision it. Let's go down this path. Let's tell a story. Let's tell a good, compelling you know, in um, in education in particular, I use metaphor all the time. And even in my poetry, that's what I think has helped me. So what's the metaphor and the image I'm trying to create? Not in a phony way. As I say, when you're, de- when you're delivering messages, there has to be content behind it. If there's not good content, you know, that's the old, isn't it the old lipstick on a pig type of thing where, you know, you, you're still selling you're still selling a pig. That's what you're selling. Or as my dad used to say, a pig in a poke. They're selling you a pig in right. a poke. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I always have a lot of energy. When I'm in a, uh, when I see people just kind of sitting there and not, and I'm not one of these people who says, get up and do jumping jacks or what. I, I don't, I don't do that. I, I sometimes do a little visioning exercise, which I have a lot of fun with because I, I never used to buy into firm visions. I used to think, ah, oh, that's kind of textbooky or whatever. But now I really do, because to me, and I always say this, it captures the essence of the firm. What are we all about? What are we here for? You know, what are we in agreement or aren't we in agreement on this? And I, I love the energy that can come out. Sometimes I'll be driving home, for example, after I taught a class and I'll say, gosh, I really nailed it tonight. I was on top of my game. Other times I'll be driving home. I go, oh, my God, that was the worst possible class I could have ever done what's wrong with me you know but either way i forget about it and move on to the next one okay um one of my final questions before we uh we sum up um i'm gonna really put you on the spot here what was the best presentation you've ever seen what was the best presentation i've ever seen well first of all let me tell you about the best proposal i ever saw first and i'm positive now because i think a uh, artificial intelligence was used it was for the I have a bit of a non-disclosure agreement, but I can tell you this part of it. The Gordie Howe Bridge, which is a, a major bridge that's being built between Canada and the United States at Windsor, Detroit, it's moving forward now. But I was charged with reviewing six, six submittals, and I had to review the operation and maintenance piece of it and run the committee that was reviewing it, you know, score the firms and make a recommendation to the board. That proposal was so well written. You could see, a, you could see threads running through it from the people assigned to their directly relevant, specific experience, how they would do it. And I, almost, I thought to myself, this is a 95 and the rest of them are 75. I wonder if artificial intelligence was used to kind of make sure that everything really stuck together. That was on the proposal side. On the presentation side, when I was on the client side, when I was running the Peace Bridge, we had two guys that were, believe it or not, this is as simple as could be. We had all these people come in with choreography, big, you know, music, everything else. This one group, two guys came, they put chairs and they sat in front of us in chairs with no aids or nothing. And they just said, we want to tell you what we're all about and how we're going to do this job for you. It was simple. It was clean. It was informative. And we hired them. Wow. (laughs) 
we did a, I did it. I was involved with a submittal on a proposal in Dubai. We did a remarkable video to go into it and everything. It was really great. It was really a high, high techie, high end presentation. But these two guys, I'll always remember that. And I'll remember it because they really, I, you know, I forgot. I, I know the other firms did all the graphics and music and everything, but these two guys just were sincere, honest, passionate, and all of that, what I'll call the human side of, the, you know, the kind of the social really resonated with us. And it wasn't just me. It was other reviewers that sat there with me. And we all looked at each other afterwards and we did one of these. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was, that was it. But I've, I, I have seen a lot of them. I have, I will say that I've seen a lot of great presentations, but that one always stuck out with me and resonated. And, and, and I love that one that you summed up on because it shows you that you don't need all the bells and the whistles and all the big gizmos. It's all about that emotional experience, isn't it? Exactly. And if you're and sometimes you can hide behind all that other stuff, if you will. And if you can't see through it to the, to the people, it's a disconnect. And it, it just doesn't work for me, you know. Okay, Stephen, I'd love you to promote you a couple of things first. Obviously, your business. Let uh, people know how they can get a hold of you and tell us about your business name again. Sure. The business name is SF Mayor um, LLC. You can reach me at www.sfmayorllc.com. Phone number is 716-864-1761. And if you're interested in writing and you just want to share your thoughts with me on poetry, essay writing, whatever, go to theobservantpoet.com. And uh, right there, I, I post a blog every week. Uh, I post up information on the book I wrote, which if anybody is interested, never buying it. It's on uh, Amazon. And it's called The uh, Observing Life, One Poem at a Time, which is kind of what I want to do. Yeah. And uh, that's, yeah, that's it. I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear from folks, even if they just want to drop me a line and say, Hey, you know, can we talk? I'm always available, uh, David, as you know, and obviously I look forward to our continuous relationship. Oh, absolutely, Stephen. And I love that statement that you made there, one one poem at a time. You know, that that's a really great way of getting people into poetry. You don't have to do the whole book. I just select one and just get immersed in it, which is fantastic. Um, before we finally go, I'm going to ask you the last question. I ask all my listeners or all my um, interviews this. If you were 18 again, what would you tell yourself? If I was, you know, it wasn't it, um, wasn't it uh, Mark Twain that said youth is wasted on the young? Was it Mark Twain or was it uh, Will, Will Rogers? I, I think I would have, I, if I was 18 again, I would say, look, life will provide for me. I can't see it right now, but life is going to provide for me. And there was a great quote from a holy, a holy woman back in the 1300s, you know, all will be well and all manner of thing will be well. There you are. Can't say it better than that, can we? Okay. Yep. Well, Stephen, it's been an absolute pleasure to have this interview with you. I mean, it was great meeting you on Lunch Club, which has been fantastic for both of us. I know we've uh, networked with many, many people. But I thank you for bringing your story to On Another Track. It's been a sheer pleasure. And uh, thanks for your honesty and, and forthrightness as well. It's been wonderful. Thanks, David. I'm so glad you and I connected. Absolutely. And have a great time down in Florida. I'm not bitter at all, you can tell, can't you? <laughs> I'll send you some sunshine. <laughs> Gratefully received up here in Canada. You take care and have a great day. You too. Be safe. 
You've been listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Stephen Mayer, helping you deliver content with relevancy. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America. Thank you.